For reading from 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they are not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it may become plain that they they all are not of us. But if you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge, I write to you, not because you you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. If you can keep those verses there in front of you, that will be really helpful um, to follow along where we're going with this. And what we're thinking about this morning is that the Christian life is a battle for the heart. I think many people in life feel a sort of sense of lostness. Asking those sort of questions like, what am I doing in life? Am I getting it right? It's funny how when you listen to what culture says around us, you pick this theme up. This is actually quite a moving quote from the comedy Fleabag. She says, I want someone to tell me what to wear every morning. I want someone to tell me what to eat, what to like, what to hate, 
what to rage about, what to listen to, what band to like, what to buy tickets for, what to joke about, what not to joke about. I want someone to tell me what to believe in, who to vote for, and who to love and how to tell them. I just think I want someone to tell me how to live my life, Father, because so far I think I'm getting it wrong. And John here is giving fatherly, pastoral advice as one who knew the Lord Jesus and lived with him, who saw him, who heard him, who could touch him. Because coming to know Jesus, and this is a letter written to those who have come to know Jesus. We said John's gospel was written to those who don't know him yet because he wants them to come to know him. This is a letter written to those who do know him. Coming to know Jesus doesn't end your struggles, does it? And you know that as well as me. We're in a battle for the heart. And John calls these believers back to the gospel and to trust in Jesus. So firstly, if you turn your eyes there to verses 1 to 11, the idea here is to get a good lawyer. I don't know if you've caught the uh, drama series Better Call Saul. It documents a shady and slimy lawyer. But listen to how he sees himself. He says, Saul is, speaking of himself in the third person, he's the last line of defense for the little guy. Are you getting sold down the river? He's a life raft. You're getting stepped on. He's a sharp stick. You got Goliath on your back. Saul's the guy with the slingshot. He's a writer of wrongs. He's friend to the friendless. That's Saul Goodman. And this section here is all about the lawyer that we have defending us. And that is Jesus. Look there at verses 1 to 2. Because what we see here is there's a good desire, but a better saviour, isn't there? My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There's a good desire, but there's a better saviour. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not, only for, uh, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's a good and a right aim not to sin, but the message is much more trust in your lawyer. There's the aim that you may not sin. I'm writing these things so you may not sin. But if the message ends there, that's utterly miserable, isn't it? Because we do sin. And so we have an advocate. Because Pastor John knows our hearts and he knows the hearts of his readers here. So he's so quick to add that when we do, we have an advocate. And the word literally is lawyer. So that we're not left to argue for ourselves. Or we're not left with a klutz lawyer like Lionel Hutz, the lawyer from The Simpsons. He says, I stood in front of every judge in the state, often as a lawyer. Now our hope, when we're brought before the judge, and we will be, is that Jesus will get us off. And he will have us freed, not because there's been a miscarriage of justice, not because suddenly some evidence was found that exonerates us. No, no, the hidden evidence just makes you even more guilty. No, no, we're let off because of Jesus' righteousness. Do you see it? We're not let off because we're righteous, after all, but the, because Jesus is. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
If anyone does sin, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's where the hope is, isn't it? The hope is that Jesus has faced the penalty for our sins that we should have faced. Sins past, but also sins present, sins future, isn't it? He is the propitiation. It's a long word. That's a fancy word, isn't it? It needs a bit of explaining, doesn't it? What it gets at is this idea, and we thought about it in the book of Exodus, it's an idea that comes right early on. In fact, actually, you could take it back even further. This isn't so much for this morning, but you could go back to Genesis 3, the seconds after the first sin, but for the sake of this morning. It's this idea that Jesus has been punished in your place for your sin, to remove God's just anger and repair the relationship. This means that you have no need to beat yourself up, to turn in on yourself in guilt, or to punish yourself. And, inadvertently, wouldn't it be very arrogant, actually, to do that? Think about it. Doesn't that believe that somehow you punishing your sins to yourself, is somehow better to cover your guilt than Jesus having covered it by being perfectly righteous. What is your sense of guilt adding to it? Nothing. It's certainly not better, is it? The faith here isn't in you deserving it. You don't. It's not in it making sense. It doesn't. But in Jesus' perfection, that he is the righteous There's a great scene in the film Spinal Tap and the guitar player is trying to explain all of his sort of gear uh, to the mock sort of documentary maker and he shows him his amplifiers and they don't go up to 10, in fact they go to 11 and so he goes on this long-winded description of how, well, you know, you know when I get to 10, I can go to 11 and he says, well, you know, why don't you just have them go to 10 but 10 be louder like, but these go to 11. Your sin may well go to 10 It may be that bad, but Christ's righteousness goes to 11. There's no way that your sin can outstrip his righteousness. Not to downplay your sin, but also not to downplay Christ's righteousness. There's no possible realm or world in which his righteousness could somehow be surpassed by wickedness. He goes to 11. That's the idea. As bad as it may be, he's better There's a good desire, but a better saviour, isn't there? But then in verse 3 to 6, there's a test. Because what you know, or what you say you know, is seen in what you do. Four times in those verses, you might see that little word know just popping up. This comes from, in the original language, the word gnosis. And the group of false teachers that John is writing against were called, loosely, Gnostics. Those who thought that they knew more than everybody else. And we said they were spiritual snobs. And so John here is being very ironic. He's being very cutting. What you think you know is seen more in how you live. Look at that in verse 3. By this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
See, the false teachers, though, let's just pause there a moment, the false teachers were very confident, do you remember, that they did keep those commandments. Do you remember, the problem for these false teachers was not pagan immorality, the problem was Christless morality, being very, very good on surface level, but nothing to do with Jesus, all to do with self-righteousness. They think that they keep these commandments. So what is the problem? Look at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. They say they know God, but they're not keeping those commands. But what commands is John thinking of here? Because like I say, they believe that they're living a very rigorous and disciplined religious life. There's something very specific in mind here for John. Because these false teachers were in general very moral. So if you skip down just a few verses to verses 9 to 11, I think this is where you see what it is that John has in his mind that they're not doing. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There is a very specific problem, isn't there? And he'd mentioned it in chapter one, that these spiritual snobs, they think they know better than everyone else. They think they've outgrown Christ's grace. They think that they can be, in their own strength, perfect. And they think they don't need the church. And so they've left. There's a specific problem. You're saying that you know God, but you're hating your Christian siblings by not seeing the need to be gathering with them. And you're in the dark thought they were better than other Christians. Their problem isn't a pagan immorality. It's not about bad behavior so much, but a Christless morality. Damnable good works is the phrase Tim Keller uses. It's a great phrase. Good works that seem so good, but when you scrub away to the motives, you find there's wicked intentions underneath them. They thought they were more righteous, they were more wise, they were perfect, and they didn't need the church, so they left. And you can't conduct yourself like this towards Christ's bride, the church, and truly know the Christ who loves that bride. That's just not possible. No, what they know is shown by what they do. And then look at verse 7 and 8 here. He reassures them here. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that is in Christ, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. We said there were people here who were bored with the gospel. They wanted to move away from the gospel. They thought, well, isn't it much more sort of righteous and wise to have these sort of special and secret revelations of the spirit that, you know, I can have and you can't? No, John is calling them back to the gospel message. Gospel message of eyewitnesses who were with Jesus, who walked with him and heard him. This is a familiar message. And we know it is, we we thought about that story last week, right at the beginning of church father Jerome from the 4th century, saying that John, when physically couldn't preach anymore, he's not strong enough, didn't have the lungs and the legs to get to the front to speak, he'd be carried into the church and he'd just give a simple one-sentence encouragement, the same one every time, little children love each other. And so this is a familiar commandment that he's given them. 
But now, go, go back a few verses to verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever keeps his word, the love of God is perfected or as it reaches its end, it reaches its goal in the person. And this is the positive opposite of verse 4, isn't it? Look at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. But all of this happens through God's work in you. Because you're saved, not to be saved. Paul puts it in Philippians 2, verse 13. It's God who works in you, both to will, that is to have the right desire, and to work. That is even the ability to act that out for his good pleasure. We shouldn't sin, but when we do, we've got the best lawyer in town, and God will change us from inside to out. I'm going to move then to verses 15 to 17 and just skip over for now, just for sake of time, that little song that John puts in there where he just reassures them and encourages them that actually they know this and they are in Christ. They've no need to fear. But let's skip to verse 15 and 17 because this really is maybe the most important part of this chapter of Scripture. Carl Jung once wrote that your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakes. But isn't that just the problem of life? That it's what you find when you look inside. We've said already, according to John's gospel, sin is our problem in life. Not self-esteem, not shame, not, not being authentic. And the problem is that our sin is not just actions, but it comes from within our heart. Jesus taught this, Mark chapter 7. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So there is a battle for the heart, isn't there? And that is John's point here. There is a battle for the heart. And John explains for us in just three short verses here what sin looks like. In verse 15, there's a summary. In verse 16, there's three pictures. And then in 17, there's two contrasting fates. Firstly, there's that summary in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. Sin at its root is not about actions, but a battle for our heart, for our loves, for our fears, for our motivators. We know from John's Gospel, John chapter 3, verse 16, says, God so loved the world. What does it mean there? Because we're talking here about not loving the world. Well, it must mean, and the word world is used in different ways at different times, it must mean at that point, the people of the world. God so loves people that he sent his only son. The world may not perish, but have everlasting life. But here, world is being used in a slightly different way because it can also be used to mean the sort of value system of the world, the way that the world works, what the world loves, the sort of gospel 
of the world, the zeitgeist, if you like. We must love the people of the world, but we must actually hate the value system of the world, the gospel, the goods of the world. And therein lies a problem. Because aren't we so prone to do the opposite? To hate the people of the world, but love the value system, love the goods, love the gospel of the world, but dislike the people. We must do the opposite. We must love the people of the world, but hate the value system, hate the gospel of the world, hate the goods of the world. And notice here how it says this, to use a very en vogue term, it's binary, isn't it? That you will either love the world or you'll love God. It is one or the other. It is not possible to love both. Jesus put it in the gospel too, if you're doubting me saying that. You can't serve two masters. It's not possible because they're opposed. There's the summary. But then there's three pictures of what sin is like. And this is really, really helpful from Pastor John. For all that is in the world, verse 16, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Three pictures of what sin looks like. And I don't know if you'll notice, maybe even already just in hearing those words, every single advert always uses one or maybe more of those ideas to sell you goods, to sell you values. But what do they mean? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride in possessions or pride of life. Might be translated slightly different for you. Desires of the flesh... It's about passion. Desires of the eyes is about possession. Pride of life is about position. Desires of the flesh are about passion. It's the temptation to feel good. Desires of the eyes are about possession. It's the temptation to have. And pride of life or pride in possessions is about position, the temptation to be. Desires of the flesh is about passion, is that temptation to feel good. It's found in things that promise to make you feel good. Could be many things, couldn't it? Could be sex, it could be drugs, it could be food, it could be approval, it could be gossip, it could be television, it could be leisure. It could be fill in the blank. Desires of the flesh, passion, the temptation to feel good. Desires of the eyes. Possession, temptation to have, things that promise that you'll feel good when you have this. It could be salary, it could be homes, it could be cars, it could be clothes, it could be relationships, it could be holidays. Fill in the blank. But when you have this, you'll feel good about yourself, good about your existence. Desires of the eyes, possession, temptation to have. And then pride of life, or pride in possessions. Position, the temptation to be. Things that promise they will make you feel good about yourself. That desire to want to be loved, to be known, to be famous, to be significant, to be worshipped. Same three temptations always. Think back to the garden, Adam and Eve. How do they describe the fruit that they were told not to eat of? 
Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desire of the flesh, passion, temptation to feel good, and that it was a delight to the eyes, desires of the eyes, possession, temptation to have it, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, pride of life, position, something to be, they took and they ate, all three. Think of Jesus' temptation, Luke chapter 4. You can read of it later. What does Satan tempt him to do? Turn stones to bread. Desires of the flesh. You're hungry. Make yourself feel good. Takes him up. Here's all the kingdoms of the world. I can give you this power and position. Temptation to have. Desires of the eyes. Look. Look how good they look. Could all be yours. You say the word. Takes him up to the temple. Throw yourself down and he'll lift you up. You'll be famous. No one knows who you are at the minute. You've lived 30 years and you're a nobody in the wilderness with me, hungry after 40 days. Where's God? He hasn't come for you, has he? Throw yourself down and you'll be famous. You'll get a clue. Everyone will know who you are. Temptation to be. To be seen. To be significant. To be worshipped. Same three temptations always. Why should you not love the world then? Well, because all of these toxic things come from the world. It is not from the Father, but is from the world, John says. And so there's two contrasting fates, isn't there? We have the summary, three pictures, and then two contrasting fates in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. Everything we see in the world around us is passing, and that is good. And yet, the verse ends, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Those who follow faithfully, yet imperfectly, trusting God to carry us, abide forever. Sin is a battle for the heart, but those who look to God faithfully will persevere by his grace. And then lastly, I want to look at verses 18 to 25 here. And John encourages the people here to stick to what they've heard. Look at verse 18. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. This is personal for John, isn't it? He calls them children. These false teachers leaving the church... Couldn't care less about these people. They think that they're better than. While John treats them as children. And you would do anything for your children, wouldn't you? And that's how John feels about his children. And so he's encouraging them on. They went out from us, he says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. There's that idea in there, isn't there, of antichrist, and that's an idea that has been much misused and abused. So what does John mean by using this term? Well, firstly, just observe there, if you look, there is a little a, and I think that's quite meaningful. John is speaking of antichrist, little a, and with an S on the end, not the antichrist, of which he speaks at moments 
in Revelation. So John isn't talking about the Antichrist figure mentioned there coming at the end of time. John uses this general sort of somewhat catch-all term for people who are specifically opposing Jesus. And you know even more what John means by scanning down just a few verses to verse 22 and 23. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's what he's bothered with. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And we said last week that the problem amongst these false teachers was they denied the human nature of Jesus because they had a problem with physical. They thought physical world is bad, spiritual good. So Jesus couldn't possibly have been fully human. And John has been very clear that it's absolutely central to the gospel message that Jesus was a historical human being as well as being God. So much so that his message is centered around the idea, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him, I lived with him. He was a human being. And because he was, he can save human beings. The Antichrist are those who oppose Jesus. And who does John mean? He gets even more specific, doesn't he? Verse 19, they went out from us. It's these very false teachers who he sees as antichrists. He says they went out because they were not of us. Their leaving Christian community not to return shows they never really were Christ's after all. They may have had a spiritual experience, but they've not come to know the living Christ if they think that there is something better for them outside of Christ and his body. And there's a reality there that the church is always a mixed gathering. There's always within it believers, searchers, inquirers, doubters, and imposters. So you might ask, well, how do I know what I am? Do I look to my performance, my passion, how disciplined I am, my sense of knowledge? Those are all very fickle, aren't they? If you're anything like me, those things fluctuate like the stock market. It might be up one minute, could be down the next. And I could do all of those things for the wrong motives without loving Christ, couldn't I? I could just love to be looked at as being very disciplined, being very knowledgeable. I could rather enjoy that much more than being motivated by Christ. So where do I look for confidence? Well, do you have a sense that even if you tried, and that sometimes you're kind of tempted to, to walk away from Jesus, you somehow couldn't, and you somehow won't, that somehow, no matter what, you'll wake up in the morning still following him, Peter put it like this, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, if you do, then you can be sure that you are a believer, an imperfect believer, for sure, with much to learn, I'm sure, but a believer, nonetheless. And you must hear this too. John is confident about these believers. Look at verse 20 and 21. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have 
knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He's confident about these believers. He's not wanting to scare them here. He's confident about their faith. And yet they still need a bit of a warning, don't they? So let's not be casual as we consider God's word. Because we're observing here matters that actually are beyond life and death. It's the level of their significance, isn't it? Because look at the result. This is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. And so here's John's plea in verse 24 and 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Stick to what you've heard in the gospel. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Keep to what you've heard. Abide in the gospel of Christ, the one he's begun to outline in chapter 1. And so Jesus will abide in you. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. The hope of the gospel goes far beyond this life. John's call is to stick to what they've heard and not follow these false teachers. As we finish, I just want to leave you with three encouragements for this fight. We've observed that the Christian life is a battle for the heart, but I want to leave you with three encouragements for it that I think come from this text and come from the message and testimony of Scripture to us. The Christian life is a battle for the heart to resist sin and trust in the gospel. But Jesus understands your struggle. Hebrews 2 verse 18. For because he himself, Jesus that is, has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus had all the same human urges, longings and limitations He knew what it felt like to be tired, to be angry, to be lonely, to be empty, to be rejected, to be misunderstood, and to be misrepresented. He knows what it feels like to be tempted to do what you know isn't right. And so, when you're tempted, you have a saviour you can turn to who will understand you. The Christian life is a battle for the heart to resist sin and to trust in the gospel. But Jesus won this battle. Hebrews 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. And note how Jesus won that battle, by the way. You can read later of him being tempted in Luke chapter 4. And every time he turns back to Satan with the word of God saying, it is written. Note that. We can look to our saviour Jesus and find hope for our struggle in his victory. He faced the temptation that we do, but he didn't give in. And in fact, he kept every single law for us. And then thirdly, the Christian life is a battle for the heart to resist sin and trust in the gospel. But Jesus defeated sin for you. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 tells us, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
He has defeated sin on our behalf so that we can be free from the terrible effects and judgment of it. Because he was sinless, he can offer himself for our sin so that it may be removed. So, what do we do then? In our battle against sin and for faith, what do we do? Murray McShane put it like this. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Look to Christ, who is everything that you're not and has done all for you. And where do we find him? We find him in the word. On every page. Points us back to Christ. So as we begun this morning. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light to my path. How will you walk in the light? Look to Christ. In the word. The light to your path. To your footsteps. Why don't we pray? And then in a few moments, we'll continue in worship and give thanks and praise for all Christ is and that we've thought about in these verses by singing Jesus, thank you, and there is a Redeemer. But let's pray just before we do that.